Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's program, the Market Insights Notes on the Week Ahead. Hello, this is David Kelly. I'm Chief Strategist here at J.P. Morgan Funds. Today is May 5th, 2020. On Friday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics will release the unemployment rate for April, which will undoubtedly be the single ugliest economic statistic of my lifetime. We estimate that based mainly on continuing unemployment claims, the number will come in at 15.5%. We also estimate that roughly 19 million payroll jobs were lost in the month. This is the shocking result of the social distancing recession that has descended on the world over the past few weeks, as individuals, companies and governments have restricted economic activity to try to battle COVID-19. It has led, and will lead, to heated debates about the trade-off between public health and economic well-being, and the course of the global economy and financial markets over the next few years depends upon the outcome of this debate. But at its core, this debate comes down to one question. If we went back to normal and let the disease run its course, how many people would it kill? In other words, what is the true mortality rate of COVID-19? Clearly, it's not the same thing as the crude mortality rate. In the US, as this is being written, 1.18 million people have tested positive for COVID-19 and it has killed almost 69,000, giving a crude mortality rate of 5.8%. However, we know that because many people have the disease asymptomatically, and many others either couldn't or didn't get tested, confirmed cases grossly understate the spread of the illness. One approach that can help estimate both the spread of the disease and its true mortality rate focuses on scattered studies of antibody testing of communities. These tests have generally confirmed much more widespread infection and thus imply lower mortality rates than portrayed by confirmed cases. However, a key question in all of these studies is how representative those tested are of the population as a whole. Another alternative, which may be cleaner, is to look at four global success stories in dealing with the disease. In particular, South Korea, Taiwan, Australia and New Zealand have all reduced new cases and deaths to a trickle. These countries have good healthcare systems and a similar demographic profile to the US. In each case, they instituted an early lockdown and introduced extreme travel restrictions, something that was obviously a little easier for them given their geographic isolation. Crucially, they all introduced extensive testing and contact tracing early. The results of their efforts can be contrasted to the US experience. Perhaps the most significant contrast is the percentage of tests that have come back positive. In the US, this number is a huge 16.2%. However, in these four countries, it has averaged just 1.3% and has generally fallen over time as they've tried to test pretty much everyone who came into contact with a live case and then isolate them. Crucially, they must have succeeded in tracking down the vast majority of cases because if they had not done so, they would not have controlled the spread of the virus. This should mean that the crude mortality rate for these four countries should be close to the true mortality rate. And right now that number is 1.9%. That being said, there are still some reasons to believe that this is an overestimate. The Korean outbreak occurred early and may have led to worse outcomes as the medical system struggled to identify and then deal with the problem. It's notable that while the crude mortality rate for Korea is now 2.4%, it is between 1.3% and 1.4% for the other three countries. Perhaps 1.3% to 1.4% is still too high because of an undercount of people who caught the disease, were never tested, but also because the lockdown never spread it. 
However, even a conservative view of these data would peg the mortality rate at close to 1%. For the US, 1% mortality has some very uncomfortable implications. First, in a country of 330 million people, if this highly contagious disease were left unchecked, it would eventually infect most of the population with fatalities numbering in the millions. Second, 69,000 people dead of the disease today would imply an infection of roughly 6.9 million people as of 23 days ago, since studies suggest that on average it takes five days between when someone is infected and starts experiencing symptoms, and 18 days from the outset of symptoms to death for those who succumb to it. This would represent just 2% of the US population. Social distancing has clearly slowed the spread of the disease, so that the daily mortality appears to have stabilized at just below 2,000 people per day. If fatalities slipped to 1,500 per day going forward, it would imply 150,000 new infections per day. But at this pace, it would be three years before half the population were infected. For a disease as naturally infectious as COVID-19, herd immunity may not make a noticeable difference until at least half the population is infected, and that benchmark will take years to attain under social distancing or imply huge loss of life if social distancing is abandoned. The consequence of this is that while many states have declared or will declare a partial reopening in the days ahead, most businesses and the public are likely to be very cautious in any return to business as usual. Restaurants, hotels, airlines, movie theatres, sports venues and retail outlets will mostly remain empty or closed. We will all adapt. Auto and home sales may pick up, takeout and home delivery services will expand and many services that used to be conducted in person will continue to move to a virtual world. However, this can only replace a small fraction of the jobs lost. As a practical matter, this means that while Friday's report may be close to the worst we will see in this recession, the pace of improvement will be very slow until a vaccine is widely distributed. In short, the recession still looks like a U, not a V, and investors should first make sure their portfolios are positioned to weather a very difficult year ahead before betting too heavily on the strength of an eventual rebound. Well, that's it for this week. Please tune in again next week. And if you have any questions in the meantime, please reach out to your J.P. Morgan representative. This content has been produced for information purposes only. And as such, the views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or recommendation to buy or sell any investment or interest thereto. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the recipient. The material was prepared without regard to specific objectives, financial situation, or needs of any particular receiver. Any research in this asset has been obtained and may have been acted upon by J.P. Morgan Asset Management for its own purpose. The results of such research are being made available as additional information and do not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, statements of financial market trends, or investment techniques and strategies expressed are those of J.P. Morgan Asset Management, unless otherwise stated, as of the date of production. They are considered to be reliable at that time, but no warranty as to the accuracy and reliability or completeness in respect of any error or omission is accepted. They may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated. Copyright 2018. J.P. Morgan Chase & Company.